Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hello, welcome to The Naked Scientists, coming to you from Perth in Western Australia and Cambridge in England. Here in Cambridge, we'll be bringing you the science headlines, including how money affects how we trust the people around us and the US scientists who've made the world's most accurate clock. And here in Australia, a new breakthrough in treating muscular dystrophy and a disguise for surfers to ward off shark attacks. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email chris at thenakedscientist.com, you can tweet at Naked Scientists, or look us up on facebook.com slash thenakedscientists. First, it's time to take a look at what's been in the news headlines this week. I'm Dominic Ford, and I'm also joined in the studio here by Kate Lamble. Kate, what have you seen this week? We've all heard the phrase, money makes the world go round. But why is that the case? That's the question that some researchers this week wanted to find out. You only have to look at the effect of the financial crisis recently to work out how integral money is into our society. But if you look at the way we live today, we live in huge cities and global communities that relies on us being able to cooperate with total strangers. So for my lunch hour, I walk down the road, go into a shop, meet a cashier that I've never met before and have to engage in a transaction with them. And that relies on cooperation with complete and utter strangers. But if you think about the way our ancestors used to live, they used to live in small groups where you're surviving depended on cooperation. You knew everybody and you knew what they were going to give you in return for what you were going to give them. So what some researchers in Switzerland and Italy wanted to find out is how money affects our behaviour in these new big societies where we have to cooperate with complete strangers. What they did first of all was that they put people into control test. They paired them up with strangers who they didn't know anything about and they found out how willing they were to share goods that they had with them on the assumption that next time people would share things back with them. So they only had a small number of things to give away. So if you were choosing to give away something, you had to be pretty sure that next time around someone would choose to give you something back. Otherwise, you'd just keep everything to yourself, wouldn't you? And what they found was that as this group of people increased that people had to cooperate with, how much they were willing to share became less and less. So when there were only two of you, 70% of the time, people chose to give away stuff that they had for absolutely nothing. But when there were 32 people, which when we think about it, even the size of a small village is a lot bigger than that nowadays, that was only 28%. So our cooperation decreases with the amount of people there are in a group. So how come we're able to interact and cooperate with total strangers millions of miles away when there are so many of us? So that's like 
if I was going to go and get a coffee, say, and I would say, Kate, would you like me to get a coffee for you? I might make that offer on the something, but next time it would be you going to get the coffee and you would get me a coffee back. But if there were five or six of us, we would know each other less well. And so there would be less trust there that the favour would be reciprocated next time. Yeah, it's just like rounds at a bar. You know the person who doesn't get their round in. And if they're included in a big group, you don't really want to include them. And the trust breaks down because there's always somebody. And when the group gets bigger, someone like that is included. And so when one person isn't willing to reciprocate, our trust for the others decreases, especially when we don't know them. When money's involved, however, things change. So what the scientists did was they introduced tokens into another experiment. Now, these tokens were totally symbolic. They couldn't be exchanged for real money or for goods in the game. But what people could now choose to do is they could either give away their stuff for free on the presumption that people would do the same to them in the future, or they could say, I'll give this to you in exchange for a token. Now, even though those tokens were purely symbolic... The tokens being introduced into the game meant that cooperations in these big groups were sustained. That group of 32 people that only had around 30% cooperation rate shot right up to 50%. People were far more willing to cooperate if this imaginary, totally symbolic system was in place. Now, what this suggests is that money, even if it's only symbolic, allows us a way to stabilise our communities. It encourages cooperation between people and manages large groups of people by putting into place a system that everyone can buy into and that alleviates the trust issues that we have with strangers. There's, of course, a payoff to this. Even though it encouraged cooperation, the introduction of these tokens or money did mean that no one started offering a gift. Everyone just was like, I'll give you this stuff in return for a token and gift stops. So while money might help stabilise our society, it does damage these cooperative relationships that humans naturally form. I guess the saying goes that money is the root of all evil and that it brings out the worst in human character. Yes, but that's not necessarily true. Maybe it's just saving us from ourselves, allowing us to do interactions that otherwise we'd go totally mad over. Kate, thank you very much. Now, earlier in the year, some astronomers were making predictions that a very bright comet would be visible in the night sky in November and December. But over the past few months, it hasn't been brightening quite as much as some people were hoping. And many people are now rather doubtful about how spectacular it might be. But why are comets such unpredictable objects? To find out, I caught up with Robert Massey from the Royal Astronomical Society. It's contentious. The object that we were looking forward to at the end of the year, and I think still are actually, is Comet Ison. It was discovered by a robotic network of telescopes in Russia, and it's been named after that, although, to be fair, there are actually a couple of scientists who probably need to be credited for it as well. But this object was thought, because it was coming very close to the sun, and also was very, very active a long way from the sun, the supposition was that when it got close into the inner solar system, it would become very bright, and certainly once it had passed by the sun and was heading out into space again. Now, there is some debate as to whether that's still likely to happen, because the activity levels on the comet haven't lived up to expectations. Now, this is actually nothing unusual. With comets, quite often they can be active when they're far out, particularly if they haven't come into the solar system before, and that looks like it might be the case for ISON, and then the activity can fall off a bit, and that seems to be happening here. So it may not be quite the object that people were expecting, and you know, there's always an unfortunate tendency for these things to be hyped. But that said, it could still be quite a nice comet as these things go. It could still be visible to the naked eye late in the year, particularly in the Northern Hemisphere. So we in the UK might get a really good view of it in the last couple of weeks of the year. But we'll just have to wait and see. I'm afraid one of those things where comets are a bit like cats, the description is that they have tails and they do exactly what they want. What's that telling us about the structure of the object? 
in understanding their activity is that they can have a variety of materials. I mean, they have ice, it's mostly frozen water, but other gases as well inside. And when they get close to the sun, that stuff heats up and it goes straight from being ice to gas because you need some kind of atmospheric pressure for material to become liquid. So it doesn't go through that phase. Now, the determining factor is really how much of it's exposed. If the comet has quite a thick, rocky crust or debris crust or dusty crust, then it's much harder for the heat of the sun to reach inside. And it also there are fewer vents for the material to come out. If, on the other hand, that's rather thinner, then you'd expect more of the material inside to come out. So probably those factors, the exact proportion of water ice and all of those things determine how active the comet's likely to be. From memory, when ice one actually makes its closest approach to the sun in November, it's going to be actually quite incredibly close. That will be a very extreme environment that those ices will be exposed to. Well, ISON is going to go within about 1.1 million kilometres from the sun's surface. And given the sun is 1.3 million kilometres across, that's really a very close approach indeed. Now, there's, again, a lot of debate about exactly what will happen because there was another object, Comet Lovejoy, that made a similar approach a couple of years ago and turned out to be quite robust. It actually came through it quite well. And there was a paper by the astronomer of Scott and John Brown on this um, around the same time. And he pointed out that you have to consider that although it's a hot environment, being that close to the sun quite clearly, there isn't much in the way of a solar atmosphere at that point. So objects can pass through it. It's um, The ones that plunge directly onto the solar surface clearly are going to be destroyed. But further out, it's, it's a lot harder to tell. So I think the jury's out on whether it will survive. If it does survive, it may turn out to be a very nice comet indeed. We, we just don't know. My thanks to Robert Massey from the Royal Astronomical Society. We'll have some more news with Philip Broadrith from Chemistry World magazine in just a moment. But first, this week, nuclear expert Michael Schneider, formerly an advisor to the French and German governments, has said that he's deeply worried about contaminated cooling water leaking from tanks at the site of the Fukushima nuclear reactors. Here's Dave Ansell and Alex Parkin-Smith with this week's Quickfire Science about nuclear power. Huge amounts of energy can be released by joining or fusing small atoms together to make larger atoms, or by splitting apart larger atoms like uranium. In nuclear reactors, atoms such as uranium-235 and plutonium-239 are bombarded by neutrons, which cause them to split in two, a process called fission. When atoms undergo fission, they often release more neutrons, which can go on to hit another atom, creating a chain reaction. A kilogram of uranium in a nuclear reaction can release more energy by fission than 10,000 tonnes of coal, gas or oil burning, and all without releasing any greenhouse gases. In a nuclear bomb, the energy from several kilograms of uranium or plutonium is emitted within a single microsecond, creating an immensely destructive burst of energy. The first controlled release of nuclear energy was in a reactor built in 1942 under the stands of a Chicago University American football stadium. It wasn't producing power, just plutonium to build America's second nuclear bomb. The first commercial nuclear power station was called a hall in Cumbria. It was built in 1956 and generated 60 megawatts of power. Unfortunately, many of the atoms left over after fission are unstable and can release some of their remaining energy over days and years in the form of high-energy particles and gamma rays, known as radiation. This radiation can damage the DNA in cells, which can cause cancer, or in very large doses, radiation sickness. On average, less than a third of 1% of your annual radiation exposure is due to nuclear bombs and nuclear power. A third and a half of your exposure is due to medical procedures such as x-rays, and the rest is due to natural radiation. The last nuclear power plant built in the UK was Sizewell B, completed in 1995. 
Today in the UK, 19% of electricity is produced by nuclear power, compared to 4.6 by renewables, and the percentage is dropping as older plants are being decommissioned. That was Dave Ansell and Alex Parkin-Smith. Greenland is home to some of the largest ice sheets in the world, and if those melt, they could cause global sea levels to rise by as much as several metres. For low-lying parts of the world, including Cambridge, that could be very bad news. But how much of a rise in global temperatures would be needed for those ice sheets to melt? Professor Anthony Payne from the University of Bristol has built computational simulations to find out, which he presented in the journal PNAS this month. Greenland represents one of the major sources of fresh water in the world and is the second greatest potential contributor to future sea levels with something like seven or eight metres worth of potential sea level rise. So that's why a lot of research has centred on understanding what's happening in Greenland over the last decade. You've looked at two mechanisms by which this melt can occur, both the melting itself and also sliding of that ice. How do you separate those two effects? We did two separate sets of experiments. One where we just looked at the effects of melt by itself so that we incorporated results from regional climate models on how air temperatures will warm over Greenland and how that will affect the amount of ice melts in Greenland. And then in the second set of experiments, we allowed that additional meltwater to interact with the flow of the ice sheet, with the idea being that if there's more meltwater around, then potentially the flow of the ice sheet could be lubricated and therefore the ice sheet would flow faster. How do you go about doing those experiments, though? Well, the experiments are performed using ice sheet models that run on supercomputers and typically take two or three days to run. You give the model um, information on the geometry of the ice sheet, how much ice there is there, where it is on Greenland. You give information on things like future climates, how much warming is there like to be over Greenland, how much melt will there be over Greenland, and how much snowfall will change over Greenland. The most important part of our work has been to develop a mathematical relationship that depicts how increased amounts of meltwater could affect the lubrication and therefore the flow of the ice sheet. I'm imagining that lubrication must be a very difficult thing to model because there must be all sorts of factors affecting how stable that ice is. What we've done is to take a shortcut and use empirical field data to parameterize the effect, which means that we treat the effect as a black box and we use field data to say, well, if there's this amount of input, i.e. meltwater, this is what the observations suggest the output would be. And in particular, what we've used is information on the seasonal speed up of the flow of the ice sheet. So they use GPS receivers scattered over the ice sheet that record the velocity of the ice flow. And then you can look at the records from those recorders and they'll show that the ice flow speeds up in the summer, or more precisely the early spring, and then slows down in the winter. So what we assume is that the winter flow is with no lubrication, and the summer flow is lubricated. So if we look at the ratio of those two, we get a handle on how important the meltwater effect is. Are you validating those models in comparison with your observational data from the ground? So the validation that we've attempted is to compare observations of ice flow against what the models predict. And on the whole, they do a fairly good job. And obviously, you're also very dependent on these models of the future climate to know 
how this melt will proceed in the future. Where are you getting those models from? For our particular study, we cooperated with Xavier Fatvise, who works in University of the Age and does regional climate modelling of Greenland. But I think the important thing to say is that when you compare his models to other models that have been used to predict what's going to happen in Greenland, his model falls pretty much in the middle of the group. The results we get are so strong that we think we could use any climate model and get a similar set of results. Often with these questions of climate change, you find yourself in what we call very non-linear processes, where suddenly a process reaches some critical point where it takes off. How do you know that as for climate changes, we're not going to move into a very different regime which your models aren't covering? The modelling wasn't intended to be a, a prediction of the future. It was intended to assess whether a particular set of effects, those related to basal lubrication and meltwater availability, were going to be important. So while there may be lots of other thresholds in the system that we're currently unaware of or weren't the subject of the particular paper that we've written, we're after understanding the effect, this particular effect and whether this, is, this particular effect is going to be important or not. And what's the conclusion? What kind of sea level rises might we expect to result from this? We found that there was very little sea level rise associated with this particular effect. A ballpark figure is roughly 8 millimetres by 2,200, which in comparison to other sources of sea level rise over the next century is fairly minimal. That was Professor Anthony Payne from the University of Bristol. We're now joined in the studio by Philip Broadwith from Chemistry World magazine. What have you got for us this week? Well, I've got some green flares that are good for the environment and we're not talking flared trousers and actually we might not even be green coloured. We're talking about environmentally green. These are flares that are used by the military to make lights, often green and red and various different colours. One of the consequences on using those in lots of training exercises that you might not consider is the environmental pollution from all of the chemicals inside them. And a particular problem is perchlorate, which is a chlorine atom with lots of oxygen on it, and that's used to provide oxygen for burning the salts in the flares that make the colours. The problem with perchlorate is that it's toxic and there are now very strict regulations about the levels of perchlorate that are allowed in water, so people are looking for alternatives. And what Jesse Sabatini from the US Army's Picatinny Arsenal has done is find a new molecule that could be used to replace the perchlorate. So what does this perchlorate do to people if it gets into the groundwater? Perchlorate's very oxidising, which makes it very toxic. The fact that it's oxidising, is that's the role that it's doing in the salt. So what you need to find, ideally, is something to replace that. And what Jesse Sabatini's done is not replace it with something that's quite so oxidising, but replace it with something that has a big kick of energy as it decomposes. And that's a 5-amino tetrazole, which has a lot of nitrogen atoms in. No oxygen, but a lot of nitrogen. And as, as that decomposes, it releases nitrogen gas, which releases lots of energy and that's what drives the reaction and if you combine that with then some strontium or barium salts you can make red or green flares. How big a problem is this? I don't know how many flares the military use but in my head it's not that many. Can we see the effects of these flares going into the groundwater at the moment? The biggest problem is on the training grounds. You know they're not used in vast numbers on the battlefield 
But if you're, you know, you have to train every soldier, they have to do lots of exercises, and all of those exercises are done in exactly the same place on the same training grounds. So you end up with a much bigger build-up of perchlorate. And some of these training grounds have actually had to be closed for clean-up because the levels of perchlorate are higher than that's what's allowed by the government. You're talking about perchlorates being used in military flares. Are these type of chemicals used in fireworks as well? Well, yes, fireworks, you still need an oxidising compound. So if you replaced perchlorates or other oxidisers in fireworks with these tetrazoles, you might find that there's a, an unexpected side effect in that because they produce nitrogen when they decompose rather than smoke, then you might be able to get much clearer fireworks displays as well. So great for the environment and great for bonfire night as well. Perfect. Dominic, what have you brought for us this week? Well, this is a story I spotted in the journal Science about the world's most accurate ever atomic clock, which has been built by the National Institute for Standards and Technology in the US. And this is a clock which is accurate to about one second in 10 billion years. Now, this is what's called an atomic clock. And these are clocks that work by looking at the oscillations of atoms which are caught inside incredibly controlled environments. Why on earth do we need to be so accurate that we need to look at atoms for timekeeping? Why aren't our normal clocks good enough? Well, of course, for telling the time of day, you don't need this sort of accuracy. But a lot of scientific experiments revolve around timing things very accurately. And I guess probably the most everyday example of why we need very good clocks is in GPS sat-nav that we all have in our cars. Because sat-nav works by timing how long it takes pulses of radiation to travel from satellites in orbit around the Earth to our cars on the streets. And by timing how long those pulses take, you can tell exactly how far away you are from those satellites. And so you've got to have an incredibly good idea what the time is. So how do you use atoms to make a clock that's that accurate? Well, if you think about a pendulum clock and why a pendulum clock isn't very good, it's relying on a pendulum swinging at a very steady rate. And in practice, you've got friction between different parts of that clock and you've got friction with the air around the pendulum bob. And those are, are all affecting the rate at which that pendulum swings. So you want to try and put this clock in a really controlled environment. Now, it's quite hard to make a controlled environment the size of a pendulum clock. It's much easier to take an atom in the lab and try and put it in an environment where it's not interacting with any other material around it. Now, atoms tend to produce waves at very characteristic frequencies. And if you think back to school chemistry, you may at some point have put some copper in a Bunsen burner flame that produces this brilliant green light. And the reason it produces that brilliant green light is because there are electrons inside that copper that make a transition to a particular frequency. And light is made of waves. Waves have particular frequencies. And that happens to map on to the green part of the electromagnetic spectrum. So I understand that an atom is producing a wavelength, but how does that help us tell the time? So if you imagine taking your atom and you're actually measuring the electromagnetic wave coming off that atom, you can count the cycles of that light. Now, if it's visible light, you've got millions of billions of cycles every second. And that's one of the reasons why making atomic clocks is so very difficult. Up until now, you've tended to use cesium atoms, which oscillate much slower at billions of times a second. So whilst that's very hard to do yourself with a stopwatch, that's about the rate that computer processors process data at. So you can start to count those cycles. The reason why we haven't used a terbium up until now, I think, is because it oscillates at optical frequencies and it's so very hard to count those cycles going past. 
So you know however many billions of cycles go past. Each time that happens, a second's gone past and it could turn it into a clock. Yes, these cycles are basically exactly like the pendulum swinging in your pendulum clock, but they're so much more accurate that they can keep tying good to, let's say, about a second in 10 billion years in the case of this clock that was written about in Science This Week. So a second every 10 billion years, that's pretty impressive. So we just need to scale it into a wristwatch for me and we'll be sorted. If you want to find out any more about the stories we've been chatting about today, you can find more information, including references to the papers, on our website at thenakedscientist.com forward slash news. Thank you, team. You're listening to The Naked Scientist. I'm Chris Smith and I'm currently in Perth, Western Australia, with my fellow naked scientist, Victoria Gill. So far, we've taken part in Australia's National Science Week. We've delivered a science lesson for kids across thousands of miles of the outback. And we've got up close and personal with Perth's dolphin population. This week, we've heard about a promising new breakthrough for the treatment of muscular dystrophy. And we've got news that pesticides, including the stuff we use to deflee dogs and deal with head lice, and which we previously regarded as safe, might be bad for your brain. Before that, though, to the ocean, which does, of course, have its dangers. Last year, in fact, there were eight shark attacks recorded around here, almost double the annual average over the last decade. Seven of those eight attacks were by the infamous Great White. Well, now a team of researchers at the University of Western Australia have come to the rescue. Professor Nathan Hart's research on shark vision has inspired the design of a wetsuit that should be less visible to sharks and might even repel them. Victoria Gill went to see him. Well, there are actually two suits which have been designed based on the science we've done. The first is a black and white banded suit, which is really designed to mimic a sea snake, so it's warning coloration. There's anecdotal evidence that certain species of shark don't like eating sea snakes, although we know that some do. There's also a camouflage design, which works on the same principles as camouflage you see army people running around in but in this case specifically designed for the underwater light environment the warning suit then is is essentially you're disguising people as sea snakes that's the idea yeah and there's obviously some disruptive element to that pattern as well what we did was to take our knowledge of the sharks spatial resolution in other words their ability to resolve detail to set the banding widths um, and that information was taken by the company who are designing the suits So what we're essentially looking at is quite a stripy suit. That's right. It's a stripy suit. We wanted to make sure that it would be visible to the shark from a certain distance away. Although sharks have very sensitive eyes for brightness, they're not actually very acute in their vision. So we're used to being able to discern very fine print in a book, for example. Sharks have nowhere near that kind of ability. They're very coarse vision, if you like. Because obviously if you make the bands too small, the black and white eventually just merge into grey at a certain distance. So we needed to make sure it was a very bold pattern and the sort of allied technology was really making sure that it resembled the sea snake. So we needed to make sure that it was biologically proportionate. If we move on to the camouflage suit then, can you describe what that looks like first of all? If you think of a a usual camouflage pattern that you might see someone in army gear, you normally have slightly different shades of green. In this case it's slightly different shades of blue that are woven together in fairly large sort of swirls of colour. The specific pattern of the camouflage suit was come up with in concert with a wetsuit designer, so it obviously has to be fashionable. But the different colours used are designed to match the light environment you see underwater. And what do you know about the shark's vision in order to understand how this camouflage would work for their visual system? 
So although the suits to us look blue to a shark, they probably actually look like shades of grey because it turns out that sharks are probably colour blind. Now we've looked at a range of shark species from things like bull sharks to carpet sharks and we're currently working on tigers and white sharks. But we expect they're going to be all very similar. Basically that they have a single type of cone in their retina which makes them cone monochromats and then probably colour blind. So the task then becomes matching brightness against the background rather than worrying about colour. So these these cones, these are pigment-sensitive sensors in our eyes. So we have three, and if a shark only has one, then it would not be able to discern the different shades of colour that we can see. How did you discover that? So we used a couple of different techniques. The first is a photometric technique where we actually take a piece of retina out the back of the shark's eye. We lay it flat and shine a very narrow beam of light through individual photoreceptor cells at the back of the eye scan through the spectrum and find out what parts of the spectrum they're most sensitive to. And we think of that as what colour they'd be most sensitive to. And doing that, we found that by surveying the retina, there was only one type present. And we confirmed that using genetic techniques, which is a way of screening what's expressed in the eye in terms of a protein or a gene. And we could confirm that there was only one cone pigment there. And once you'd made that discovery, did you immediately jump to being able to take advantage of what you knew of the limitations in a shark's vision in, in order to camouflage people and prevent them from shark attacks? How did your work progress from there? That kind of connection with an, an application has obviously always been there, but we were actually quite coincidentally approached by a company here who was interested in this space after the spate of shark attacks in WA. And they sort of put their heads together and thought we must be able to design some sort of wetsuit that's harder for sharks to see or scares sharks away and they found our group here at uh, UWA and so it was very timely based on the discoveries that we'd made. And how do you test a shark proof wetsuit? It sounds like it could potentially be a very terrifying test. Well we have lots of PhD students who are willing to swim with these suits on, just joking. Really, it is very hard, in actual fact, for all shark deterrents to test these things. Limited testing can be done in the lab, but ultimately you have to take the product out into the wild, try and induce sharks to come up and investigate, and then you have to see how effective it is. And we're at the the very early stages of helping the company to test their wetsuit, and it would be really nice to validate it and see if the science really works. There's likely to be no downside of the suit, but it would be really nice to know whether it decreases your chances. Does that really involve putting dummies in different wetsuits underwater and inducing sharks to come and investigate and and see what happens? Well, obviously there are ethical problems in putting uh, either a person or even just an entire wetsuit, a mannequin, in the water. So we have to do it in a slightly more controlled way, which is to use a piece of the wetsuit material wrapped around something which doesn't resemble a human, because obviously we have to be very careful that we don't want to um, make any association between humans and food in an area where there are sharks. Nathan Hart speaking with Victoria Gill. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith. A breakthrough for the human disease muscular dystrophy now, thanks to two Murdoch University researchers, Steve Wilton and Sue Fletcher. Duchenne muscular dystrophy is a life-limiting neuromuscular disease that results in losing the ability to walk by the age of 12, and they don't usually survive beyond their early 30s. The gene responsible for the disease is on the X chromosome, so it mainly affects boys, but about 1 in 50,000 girls has the disease. And mutations in this gene prevent the synthesis of a protein called dystrophin, which is a very important structural protein in muscle, 
and that's in all muscles, heart, skeletal muscle, and in smooth muscle, so the smooth muscle of the gut. So when an individual has muscular dystrophy, what goes wrong in their muscles, and what would a person notice about them? Boys with muscular dystrophy do not reach the same motor milestones as other children. Typically, the boys are not walking until perhaps the age of two. They don't climb stairs very well. They have to hold on to someone to climb stairs. They don't jump with both feet up off the ground, and they don't run as other children do. They struggle to rise from the floor, and that's very characteristic in this disease. And if I were to take a little piece of muscle away and look at it under a microscope, how would it differ to a person who doesn't have muscular dystrophy? Somebody with normal muscle, if you take a small piece of muscle and you cut across the muscle, it looks like a bundle of straws. The muscle fibres are nice, regular, they're much the same size. When somebody has muscular dystrophy, the muscle is disorganised. It's full of fat and connective tissue and lots of little inflammatory cells chewing up damaged muscle. In advanced disease, it doesn't look like muscle at all. And do we know why not having that dystrophin protein working properly in the muscle makes that happen? Dystrophin provides strength and stability to the muscle during muscle contraction. So when the protein is missing, the muscle gets little tears when it's under strain, when it contracts, and gradually inflammatory cells start to chew up the muscle because it looks like damaged tissue and the body cleans it up. So the muscle is gradually replaced with fat and scar tissue. Steve, what can we do about this? One of the ways we've been trying to treat this disease is changing the expression of the defective dystrophin gene. The dystrophin gene is the largest known gene. It it makes up almost 0.1% of our genetic makeup, 2.3 million letters in this one gene. It's been estimated that the enzyme that starts making the RNA copy takes 16 hours to get from one end to the other. It's like a book with 79 chapters. The first few chapters code for the attachment point at one end, the the last few chapters are important at the other end. So what happens in Duchenne muscular dystrophy, there's a spelling error somewhere in the chapters. And say there's a part of chapter 16 that says stop reading at this point. So the shock absorber is made up to chapter 16 and then the rest of the message is lost. So we have a defective shock absorber, it's not going to work, you can have weak muscle fibres. So can we persuade muscle cells, when they're reading this book, to skip over the chapter that's got this instruction so that it would carry on through to the end? That's exactly what we're doing. We've designed genetic band-aids that can stick at or near the defective chapter. And so that, imagine a book with the 79 chapters. It's sticking all the pages together of one chapter. So chapter 15 is joined to chapter 17 rather than having chapter 16, which is the disease-causing part. Can you just explain exactly what these genetic band-aids are? How do they work? They're called antisense oligonucleotides. They're short genetic fragments that will stick to the dystrophin message. Now, the dystrophin message is called the sense strand, and the fact that these are complementary to the sense strand makes them antisense. So they're effectively the genetic mirror image of the gene that is in the cells that's gone wrong. So how do they make the cell stick the chapters together? What happens is that the cell machinery recognises parts of the gene message that have to stitch one chapter to the next. So we're interfering with the recognition of a chapter. It essentially sort of tapes all those pages of a defective chapter together. So when your genetic band-aid is stuck on, it effectively crowbars 
the, the cell's machinery and just says, ignore this bit and go on with the next bit. Actually, I use the analogy of a spanner. We're dropping a spanner into the splicing machinery so it clogs up that part of the, the process and it skips over it completely. Have you got to the stage where you've got evidence this is actually working? Well, we've had close on 20 years of animal experimentation and cell experimentation showing that we can do this in a dish with cells and we can do it in mice. But a mouse is is a very small animal. The longest muscle in a mouse is about a centimetre long. So we have a lot of evidence showing that if we treat young mice, we can abrogate the onset of the disease. We can stop the disease process beginning in these mice by making the muscles, and that's all the muscles, make dystrophin. So these mice... Their muscle looks like normal muscle. So So how do you get Steve's genetic band-aids into the mice? We inject them into the mice. It's very simple. We dissolve the compounds in saline, salty water, and inject them into the mice. And we've been working with a company that has taken this to human trials, and they do exactly the same thing. They dissolve the antisense oligos in saline, and they inject it intravenously over about an hour, And there are 12 boys who have been treated in the current clinical trials. There have been some previous trials. They've now been treated for over 80 weeks, and they have stabilised. So they measure the distance the boys can walk in six minutes and over 80 weeks. Those who have been treated are essentially walking the same distance 80 weeks later. And the natural history of the disease tells us that these boys, many of them would have been expected to stop walking by now. And one of the clinicians working on the trial says that in the history of this disease, this is unprecedented. And this requires regular therapy. They would come and see someone in the clinic, say, what, every week for a top-up of the genetic Band-Aid? At present, the boys are being treated every week. We don't know if this is the optimum treatment, but this is what clinical trials are for, to, first of all, prove that the drug is safe, secondly, to prove that the drug does what it's supposed to do, in other words, preserve the muscle, restore muscle function, and ultimately there will be additional trials to determine how often and how much of the treatment is required to keep the boys well. Sue Fletcher and Steve Wilton. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith, currently in Perth, Western Australia. Another medical breakthrough now, this time in the form of a treatment for osteoporosis. Professor Ming Hao Zheng from the University of Western Australia is leading a research project that began with a walk on the beach when he kicked a dried up piece of sea sponge. He immediately noticed how much its porous structure looked just like human bone, and he's now created sea sponge implants that are undergoing trials in animals, as he explained to Victoria Gill. These sea sponge powder. Once implant into a pouch of muscle, we can see uh, inside of the muscle they induce the C spans to become bone tissues. So they tell us that these C spans have uh, osteoconductivity to actually attract stem cells to form bone tissues. So it's actually forming bone tissue in the animal's yes. body that would never grow bone. Exactly, yeah. So that is what we can use because this scientific experiment proved that the C-spans may be able to use 
in patients for the induction of bone formations. We're looking now at a, a piece of the sea sponge, and this is actually the same species that you kicked up on the beach in Margaret River. So what did you notice about it that inspired your research? The first thing I noticed about is what I kicked away was a, a probably piece of the animal bone that left by the dog. But after I look at it, I said, no, this is a sea sponge. So I said, how come the sea sponge look like animal bone, but the more I look at it, this is not an animal bone, it's a sea sponge. So I analyzed them and found that the sea sponge, first of all, their morphology is almost identical to a normal bone tissue. And secondly, when we analyze this, these sea sponge contain collagen. And we found that collagen is very conservative through the evolution. So Another word is that what we see of collagen sea sponge probably very much identical from the collagen that we see in human. So as a result, this inspired me that the sea sponge may be biocomparable, may be able to be implanted into the human tissue. And it's this very porous structure that you can see, these tiny little holes in it, that made you think of that bone scaffold, is it? Yeah, it's, a, it's a, like all these tiny little holes, and this, all these holes are connecting each other. It's very much like what we see in human bone uh, tissues. And we've also got, you've brought some of the paste along. So in this dish here, what do we have? So we took this sea sponge and then processing in the lab and make this become a sea sponge paste. And we now do this paste implant into an animal to examine their osteoconductivity. And some of the study found that this sea sponge paste can induce bone formations in, in the muscles. And osteoconductivity, so that means causing bone to grow, inducing bone to grow. Yeah. So it looks a bit, little bit like wallpaper paste. It's peach and it sort of has these fine granules in it. it. It's got a rather sort of sticky, kind of claggy consistency. What exactly is in there? Well, what we do is that we process this by the keys to actually remove all the DNA in the cells from the sea sponge and then we just preserve the collagen component and some of the mineral components and then we, we mix with some of the chemicals to actually make like a paste-like structure that we can make a different shape that according to the shape of the bone then, then to do the implant. The implant could be shaped for the fracture, for the damage, for the specific bone that you're using it for. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes we can put in is uh, like a strip or just putting as a solid bone or, or make it as an injectable. Yeah. So from a simple walk on the beach to, to this, which could be used in human clinical trials within how long do you think before this I, comes I, into the I, clinic? I guess that at the moment the key is that we have to finalise a so-called agriculture good manufacture practice to ensure that the starting material of sea sponge is not sea sponge that I pick up from the beach. It's mm-hmm. actually a sea sponge that is goes through a quality control production and then we can use in the patient. And this is why it's holding me for so long. But I hope for the next two or three years, we, we hope that with a potential partner, we'll be able to translate this idea into patient use. So you'll get your steady supply of sea sponge and then hopefully get this into the clinic and it will be able to help heal some very, very problematic fractures. 
Absolutely. Minghao Zhang from the University of Western Australia. You're listening to The Naked Scientists. I'm Chris Smith. What do you get if you mix a pharmacologist, a drug specialist, with a chemist? Well, if you're Murdoch scientists Garth Maker and Ian Mullaney, then the answer is a totally new way of profiling how cells respond to toxic or therapeutic substances. They've been profiling all of the chemicals made by cells, both when they're healthy and when they're injured, in order to develop a way to find new drugs that can reverse the damage done by a stroke. But their system has also enabled them to look at pesticide chemicals we used to think were safe. Ian Mullaney. Well, one of the problems that has been interesting me for a long time is what happens when cells get injured. It's clear that when cells get injured, either by some sort of mechanical trauma or chemical or other exogenous trauma, the cells don't immediately die. They go into a period of being sick and then into a protective mode. In stroke, for example, the stroke infarct, the area of dead tissue, around about that becomes an area called the penumbra, which is of cells which are susceptible to damage. And what we think there is the window of opportunity, for example, to actually protect those cells. So there is this period after a cell is injured when it may be destined to die if there's no intervention, but not necessarily. And if you can work out what's going on when it goes into this mode upstream of dying, you may be able to turn the tables and reverse the death process. That's right. What seems to happen is that the cell starts to release compounds when they've been compromised. One of the major ones that they release is is a compound called glutamate, and glutamate is ultimately a cell killer. But it seems that in these early stages, the glutamate is actually acting as a protectant. Garth, you're trying to do this by looking at what chemicals are in cells and come out of cells during these injury processes and the recovery processes. How are you actually doing that? The basic principle of metabolomic analysis is that we want to profile as many of the small molecule metabolites, things like amino acids, sugars, fatty acids, in a single sample as we can. So we take the cells, we extract the metabolites, and we then use a combination of chromatography and mass spectrometry techniques in order to profile not only identifying which compounds are present in a sample, but also how the levels change from one sample to another, which we can then use to actually see which changes are occurring in a specific sample that are due to the treatment or due to the toxic event. So Ian hands you some cells which he has made sick and you can then put the cells through your analytical process and come up with a profile, not just at that moment in time, but I presume you could look at different points in time to work out how processes biochemically are changing around these cells as they go through this injury process. Absolutely, and that's one of the key advantages of the technology is that we get these very large amounts of data that tell us exactly what's going on in a whole range of biochemical pathways at both multiple time points and also over a range of doses as well. So we can get a a true picture of the pharmacology or the toxicology of these compounds. So what is this actually showing you, Ian? What we're able to do is to take that data and then we can look at the data produced from the healthy cells and then compare it to the data produced from the cells that have been insulted. And what we can then actually end up with is actually a pictorial representation of the data. And it makes it very easy to see the changes then. So we can see in the graph that we produce, we can see a little hot spot of important chemicals which give us the normal condition. And then we can see a shift in the graph. And by looking at the shift, that gives us an indication of the damage. And then we can maybe try and reverse that damage by adding protectant drugs and see if we can take the, the shifted pattern back to the normal pattern. 
So it's not just a question of saying, can we look for drugs that will stop this happening? But you could also ask, why do some drugs cause damage? Or even do they cause damage? Because if you've got a new drug no one's ever seen before, you could put it into that kind of assay and see if the cells produce a metabolic profile in Garth's tests that are similar to the ones that are produced by known toxic agents. And if they do, you, you know immediately this new drug may be harmful. Well, that's right. When we've got a quite a lot of data now looking at methamphetamine, and we can actually show when we treat the cells with methamphetamine, we can see this characteristic shift from the well cell pattern to the sick cell pattern. And that could be extended to other drugs of abuse, and that's something that we're interested in at the moment anyway. And obviously, if you can work out why some things cause bad things to happen, that may give you an insight into how to make good things happen. Yes, that's, that's right. One of the things that, we're, we're, again, we're interested in is actually screening compounds as neuroprotectants. What we, ha- we have is a number of compounds planted to, to investigate. We make the cells sick. We can look at the pattern of the sick cells and then try and reverse that to make the cells healthy again. Sounds so obvious. Now we're all having this sort of conversation, doesn't it, to think you put a chemist like you, Garth, with a pharmacologist like you in and you can do this. Why is no one doing this? The technology for metabolomics has really only taken off in the last decade. And I think it's the beautiful thing that we get in science, which is where you have people with different skills coming together and realising that actually we can combine these new skills and new technologies in exciting ways to look at things that we haven't been able to previously do. And is it just drugs in, or could we look at other things as well? People are quite worried about environmental contamination, that kind of thing. No, of course. We can actually look at any factor which would cause damage in these cells. So, for example, we have a number of projects looking at pesticides, short-term and long-term exposure, and we find changes in the metabolite profile of these cells which mimic normal damage that we've seen in the cells. Dare I ask which insecticides you're seeing damage from? So far we've focused on ones that people will be commonly exposed to, primarily permethrin, which is found in a lot of flea treatments for household pets, and also malathion, which is found primarily in head lice treatments. And we see not only do we have biochemical effects at very high concentrations, as you might see during an an accident and exposure, but also chronic low-level effects and effects where we see a single one-off event that then has a lasting effect within the cell over an extended period of time. These compounds that are in common use because we regard them as safe, you're saying that in your assays you can detect changes in cells biochemically which mirror changes caused by known very bad toxins. And obviously there's going to be a threshold whereby we'll see some low-level biochemical effects which are not in the long-term toxic. At certain levels of exposure or over certain periods of time, we will pass that point and we will see long-term toxic exposure due to these compounds. And it's something that I think we don't have enough data as to the long-term effects of these compounds which are so prevalent in our environment. So what are the implications then for these things that are ubiquitously used in the environment, the coatings on the insides of the the tin can that the baked beans come out of? There must be all kinds of chemicals that this sort of level of scrutiny has never, never been done for. That's absolutely right. I mean, one of the problems that I think they've faced in the past is that we haven't been able to detect the changes at the low levels these compounds are present in, in these um, products and it's only now with the technologies of the mass spectrometry in particular that we can actually find effects caused by very, very low levels of exposure to these compounds. Obviously we've talked about brain cells a lot but um, you could pos- probably do this for any bit of the body, couldn't you, Garth? Absolutely and, and, and our next focus is going to be on liver cells. These are the cells that are primarily going to deal with a lot of these uh, toxic or potentially toxic compounds as they enter the body uh, and indeed any other cell type that, um, that we are interested in, we could culture the cells and look at the effects of them using the same system, absolutely.
Ian Mullaney and Garth Maker. You're listening to The Naked Scientists. That's almost it for this week. There's just time to join Hannah now for our question of the week. This week, we try to interpret dreams. Hi, this is Elisa Weiss calling from Long Island, New York. I was wondering if you can tell me what's going on in the brain when we dream. And what makes us have bad dreams? What causes nightmares? And do dreams really have any meaning? Thanks. Thanks, Eliza. So is there a biological reason for dreaming? We turn to the sleep and dream expert, Dr Valdus Narika, based at the MRC Cognition and Brain Sciences Unit in Cambridge. He starts by debunking some sleeping myths. You may think that your brain switches off when you sleep, but no. In fact, the regions of your brain that process what we see and feel are just as active when we dream as when we are awake. But instead of using external stimuli, such as what we see or hear, these brain regions process the things we've learned and remembered during the previous days. This means that we dream. But because when we dream we don't consciously choose a single memory to process, different memories can merge together in a spontaneous and rather systematic way. This means we can create whole new worlds and people in our dreams. Thanks, Valdas. So our dreams are the result of processing memories, which can happen chaotically to integrate people, places and times to create an incoherent dream world. Do we know why these dreams sometimes turn into nightmares, though? As well as the memory part of your brain being active during dreaming, the emotion processing part is also active, including the fear processing limbic system. This might partially explain why negative emotions and feelings are much more common in dreams than in waking life and result in nightmares. Because what's in our dreams depends on memories of what we experience when we are awake, it's perhaps unsurprising that if you've been experiencing high levels of stress in your day-to-day life, you're more likely to have nightmares. While there is no evidence of universal meaning of different contents of dreams, we certainly have a personal psychological meaning by bringing up traumatic experiences or perhaps by simply reminding us our old friends. Thanks, Valdas and Eliza. Well awakening with a bump, we close this week's show with a question that Ben Barnett wrote in with. If we dropped a penny from the top of the Burj Khalifa in Dubai and it hit somebody on the ground, what would the consequences be? So, a penny hitting your head after an approximate 830 metre drop from the tallest building in the world. Ouch! Or no effect at all. What do you think? Hannah Critchlow. And if you can help us out with the answer, then drop us an email to chris at thenakedscientist.com, tweet at Naked Scientist, or look us up on Facebook. There's also a web forum at nakedscientist.com slash forum where you can join the online debate about the subject too. That's it for this week. Do please join us next time when we'll be opening the mailbag and taking on your science questions. I'm Chris Smith, and thank you very much for listening. Goodbye.